It's getting late. I have guests. Do you intend to cooperate with us? I'd like a simple yes or no. A simple no? For the simple reason I simply don't know what you're talking about. Give Mr. Kaplan a drink, Leonard. A pleasant journey, sir. And welcome to Friends at Dusk, a Christopher Nolan filmography podcast. I'm your co-host, Marshall Doig. And I'm your other co-host, Jake Harris. And tonight we are talking all about the influences on Tenet. Lesson number one, don't make time with the boss's girl. That's what I learned this week. Nope. Don't do it. It's not allowed. No matter what spy organization you work for, don't. It's not worth it. Or that someone thinks you work for. One of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess we're going to be, let's see if we can try to self-reference and self-parody ourselves through this. Or we could just <laughs> go about our business as normal. It's no True. no special formula here. That's good advice for uh, any job, too. Don't try to date your boss's daughter. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I've never attempted that myself, but I, yeah, in the, it's definitely not now. I, I'm, uh, <laughs> I am taken, I am not available. So I'm not going looking anywhere else. Anyway. Here. Yes. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, news announcements. We do have a couple of announcements, a programming announcement. Yeah. Normally we try to do every other week on our releases, but starting this week, date of release, July 5th. Uh, and then on the, our subsequent weeks, July 12th, normally would be a skip week, but we're going to, release an episode there and on the 19th leading up to Oppenheimer we're going full throttle we'll be doing this episode Tenet and then the Oppenheimer lead-in episode so get ready uh, for Fast and Furious uh, not that kind not the movie kind just <laughs> uh, family everything coming at you very we do quickly. welcome you to the Nolan family though join us yes yes indeed so we'll not not only trying to capture the zeitgeist but also as planned meet that meet our commitments so we're gonna be getting everything out and on time and then once oppenheimer's out we're, i don't know if we're gonna have four weeks in a row of episodes i don't know if that's gonna we'll see what happens with that we'll just try to crank that one out as quick as possible at the very least we plan to have a reaction to the film uh quick something for y'all but yeah uh, for sure that's the plan. So keep an eye out. Don't get confused if we have uh, an episode out a week after this one. That is all part of the plan, as a certain Nolan character has said in the past. And what else we got going on, Jake? Uh, we also uh, we got our Barbie tickets. Uh, and so for those of you who are planning on seeing both in the same day, let us know what order you're going to go in. Uh, we opted for a barbie early morning matinee screening and then we're gonna do oppenheimer at later in the day afternoon matinee screening um we may have made a mistake so with that though with the order maybe i don't know maybe we needed the like the shot before the chaser i guess and we're doing the other way around now i don't know but yeah i don't know just feel like you know get some brunch get some some breakfast tacos you know mimosas or something watch some barbie be all happy and then just you know get crushed by the existential weight and dread of a uh, nuclear warfare later on in the afternoon so who knows <laughs> but, yes. uh, i want to find one of those shirts you sent this to me but i've seen other brand parts of it popping up everywhere else online with the shirt where they melded the pink barbie shirt and like a black and orange oppenheimer shirt together yeah. uh, and stitch it together i want to get one of those i also saw it I saw a thing the other day where someone was like, I bought this in 2016 and you can check my receipt. And they put a screenshot of the online order to prove that they weren't lying, uh, which still could have been Photoshop, but it, for the bit, it was pretty funny, but it was a like pink Barbie sun visor with a fanny pack on it. Like the one that they wear in the movie, but it says I have become death destroyer of worlds. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a, what a world we live in. Yeah, so maybe we we might be talking about some of the, the the Barbie stuff in the Oppenheimer thing, just as that as a cultural uh, event. And from the trailers, it looks like they're going to be talking a lot about like some existential stuff too. But we'll see. 
Very interesting. It'll be an interesting movie-going day for sure for both of us. Yes, and I, I'm talking about we may have put them in the wrong order simply because uh, in the intervening weeks since our last recording, Wired has released an interview that they did with Christopher Nolan, and we're really going to talk about that a lot more once we are going into Oppenheimer in our lead-in episode for that. But the quote that really is sticking out to me from that is, when the Wired interviewer Maria Straczynski asks Chris Nolan about how early viewers are reacting to Oppenheimer, he says, some people leave the movie absolutely devastated. They can't speak. So I am completely looking forward to that experience and uh, just thinking, you know, maybe Barbie would have been a good pick me up instead, but we've got what we've got. We're going to have to deal with that. And the Wired interview also touched on Nolan saying there's it's almost like a horror movie in some ways. And it's kind of funny because that's what we've we've kind of joked about it before. Will Nolan do a horror movie? I think from from the get go of this podcast and brought it up a couple times since then. But maybe this is it. Maybe this is the one where just the horror of nuclear weapons and an existence in a world where that's a constant background threat seems to be the the horror here. And we'll see how unspeakably mortified and emotionally impacted we all are once we see that. Can't wait. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's why I go to the movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we're kind of, yeah, again, going to save a little bit of that for another time when we're talking about influences and and things on Oppenheimer. So in the meantime, the other piece of Nolan news, I guess, we've actually got quite a lot of things to to talk about for that this week. But the last thing is, uh, I've noticed some screenings of Christopher Nolan movies popping up here uh, in Austin at some Alamo draft houses, including Dunkirk and Inception and Interstellar and also Tenet. So I would love to get to all those if I could, but I can't quite do that so i chose the one that i actually have not seen in the theater before and that will be tenets i'm actually going to see it the week of oppenheimer coming up so i'll be watching it for the podcast and then i'll be watching it again a few weeks later <laughs> to see it so uh, in the theater so nice. you'll have to and we'll talk about it too for me because i'll obviously be watching that one at home but i'm very eager to see the difference in the sound mixes watching it at home versus watching it in the theater so uh, right that'll be a topic of discussion for later yeah all of which is to say me talking about the local alamo stuff for me uh anyone listening here if you're interested maybe poke around your local theater listings and see if you can find a showing for anything you might like if any other of your your nearby theaters are doing something similar but otherwise uh jake what are we reading watching listening to whatever uh, outside of this podcast. Uh, So I just got back from a trip to uh, go see my family in Tennessee. And then I also stopped by at the Chattanooga Film Festival uh, celebrating its 10th year right now. It's a like horror genre movie type festival. And I actually got to cover it for a couple outlets that I write for. I ended up getting to do a thing for the local paper over there. And so got some like kind of a history of the fest and a little bit of an overview of what I saw there. I think I saw seven feature movies over the weekend and then like 10 short films. And then there's like a lot more that I want to watch through their virtual portal before it closes here in a few days. Um, But the thing that I just kept thinking was, wow, this is like very Nolan adjacent movie right now that I wasn't expecting uh, was this movie called Lola which was the early Sunday morning screening. So it was kind of like everyone had been out on a party the night before. And so they wanted to program something that was a little bit more warm and wasn't too crazy or scary or anything. And so this movie is about two British sisters. Uh, One is a like brilliant scientist and the other one uh, is brilliant in her own right, but nowhere near like the genius that her sister is. 
and they come up with this machine that can intercept radio waves and they figure out a way to program that to go into the future to see stuff. And at first they do it with like music. And so they, you know, they do the back to the future thing and they introduce the 1940 world to David Bowie. Uh, and they start, you know, there's a really pivotal scene where they, um, they perform the kinks. You really got me. And it becomes like a national anthem way before it even actually gets released in a movie called Lola too, no less for the, yeah, I see. Yes. Yeah. And so at first it's like kind of stuff like that, but then they start to realize like, Oh, if we can just set it like a day in the future, we can intercept the military radio signals and the reports of what's going on in the war. And then we can then retroactively take that back and use that to prevent stuff that's going to happen. And so then British intelligence gets involved because they figure out what they're doing. And then they have to work with this uh, intel officer to kind of just completely combat everything that the Nazis are doing. And so they prevent a ton of bloodshed through this and they like stop all the bombings way earlier than they actually, when they actually stopped in real life. But in the process through like that and the butterfly effect and everything, it just has disastrous consequences for Britain and the rest of the world and for these two sisters at the heart of it. And it's really short. It's only like 75 minutes long, but it's it packs a lot into that short running time. And it does a thing where it's filmed entirely in black and white and it uses old newsreel footage for a lot of the historical stuff. But it kind of Forrest Gump superimposes the characters into this old newsreel footage. And it was really fascinating just looking at it and realizing like, oh, they took that. And that's a video from a plane flying by that they just stuck that in there like that has to be something from 1941 or something like that. But it was really, really interesting. I hope it gets wide distribution sometime somewhere. But I just kept thinking, I was like, man, this is very much like, I, I think if you like Nolan stuff, you would enjoy this. Or if you just like time travel narratives or anything about World War II, I think it'd be pretty good. I mean, that sounds like you said the same things are Nolan, time travel narratives, World War II. I, we got, yeah, all the bases covered. <laughs> Exactly. That's the last like three or four episodes for us. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that does sound fascinating. And I will keep an eye out for that if it becomes available some way, somehow for me. But I have been just, you know, watching a few things here and there. I, I did go for Father's Day, treat myself to another screening of Across the Spider-Verse. So that was great. And nice. Last week in preparation for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny getting released. I went back through all four Indiana Jones movies, which I've never watched them all consecutively before. I'd seen them all before. I just never watched them all together. So I did my own personal indie thon last week, and it was a really good warm up, I think, for coming to this episode and talking about Tenet and some of the things we're going to talk about because of some of just the amazing set pieces and some of the just bonkers plot things going on with all of those movies to, to come and talk about here. So it was a, it was a good, uh, getting my, my eye in, I guess you could say for the work to be done here. And it was, it was a lot of fun getting to revisit all the indie movies and Raiders easily the best, but I was able to revisit my opinions of the other ones as well. And, uh, found something to like in every, one of them even crystal skull so you know there's the thing i'll say about crystal skull is the fridge nuking scene unfairly maligned that is actually really fun and like oh i remember loving that yeah i remember loving that when i saw that i was god was i in high school when that movie came out yes you were because i had just finished (laughs) (laughs) yeah i remember liking it but i haven't seen it since then yeah, it's actually really solid for the first half and kind of falls apart, but there's still a lot of great Indiana Jones stuff. It's definitely an Indiana Jones movie, and uh, even if it's not uh, very strong overall, um, it's got plenty of great entertaining stuff in there, just like the other ones, which are a lot stronger. But Indiana Jones, and I'm looking forward to somehow finding time to get a screening in for Dial of Destiny somehow, some way. I'll try to figure that out, but. Otherwise, I've got the other four in the bag recently and ready to go. Nice. I need to do a rewatch of that before I... I don't know when I'm going to have time to go see the new one either, but yeah. definitely want to catch that one in theaters. 
yeah, I, I highly recommend it. But this is not an Indiana Jones podcast or a Lola podcast. It is <laughs> a Christopher Nolan podcast. And what are we talking about today, Jake? Tonight we are talking about, like we said before, the primary influences on Tenet. And uh, for those, we chose the Night Manager novel by noted spy novelist John Lacari and Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest. And why did we choose these specifically, Jake? Yeah, uh, so they both share some spy elements uh, to them, so they're kind of related that way. But uh, for the night manager uh, from the uh, Nolan Variations, there's a pretty good quote there um, where it says, the night manager in particular fed into tenant with its portrait of the corrupt, wealthy inner circle of an arms dealer protected by the British establishment whose girlfriend was also played in the recent TV series adaptation by Elizabeth Debicki, who was also in Tenet. Um, and like the then, same role, yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much the same role, yeah. And it's funny, because as I was reading it, I was like, oh, I wonder who plays, because I forgot that I read that quote in the Tom Schoen book, and I was, I was yes, reading the well. book. I was like, I wonder who plays her in that TV adaptation, because that might be interesting. And I looked at him and was like, oh, of course, this makes sense. Naturally. Yes. She's yeah. born to do this. Yes. Yes. But does the TV series let her be tall like Tenet does? Let's see. Um, <laughs> that, yeah, that's for another time. <laughs> uh, I can, I'll find that out. I'll do some research. Uh, but anyway, and then North by Northwest uh, is mentioned a few times in the Nolan Variations. Uh, but the biggest quote that uh, pertains here is talking about the making of Tenet. And it says, if Inception was Nolan's vertigo, then Tenet, with its time-bending plot, twists and betrayals, acres of brutalist concrete, and Michael Caine cameo, seems destined to be seen, in his, seen as his North by Northwest, the film in which Nolan riffs on all things Nolan-esque. Which seems very appropriate. Yes, and I, I was thinking a lot of that as I was watching it earlier, so... As always, blanket spoiler alert reminder for these things. Uh, we will be talking about all the plot points, spoiling a lot of stuff, and probably referencing a lot of other things that we have watched previously for this podcast. So if you want to stop that and go check out other episodes or watch what we're talking about right now, go do that. Come right back. And now that you're back, I will let uh, you take the reins on the Night Manager synopsis, and then I'll grab North by Northwest later. All right, so The Night Manager by John Licari. I, I there's that accent on the E that throws me off. Anyway, came out in 1993. It was his first post-Cold War novel, detailing an undercover operation to bring down a major international arms dealer. So I have never read it before, and I have actually never read anything by John Licari before. So this was an experience in, in more ways than one. And what about you, Jake? Uh, yeah, same. First, first Lucari, uh, first novel of his I've seen. I think maybe some movies that have been based on his work, but I've never read a book of his before. Reminded me a lot of like Robert Ludlum, the guy that wrote Born Identity right. in that series, which this book came out kind of at the uh, beginning of the Gulf War, and Born Identity came out back in the seventies, like actually during the Cold War. So it's kind of a murky on like who influenced who and whatnot but Lakari was actually he was a spy for mi6 i believe yes i think some brief stints in that and mi5 as well something yeah Yeah. uh and Lakari, i actually found out isn't his real name so he's doing an identity thing on the world uh, even when he's writing so his his real name is uh david cornwell or at least that's who the uh the copyright is listed under for this book so a fun little bit of spycraft for this book as well, <laughs> on top of the very, very uh, dense plot that we've got going on for this book. Oh, is it dense? Yes. <laughs> so we'll we'll touch of, on that. Yeah. Lots of double crosses, lots of betrayals, lots of stuff. Um, let me see. It's definitely one thing it shares yeah. with Tenet. It is very dense plot wise. Yes. Yes. Very dense. But also like. And I, I watched this YouTube video today that I'll talk more about when we actually talk about Tenet. It's from Patrick Willems that I've mentioned before, but he does a whole video about just vibes movies with Tenet as its thesis, as something that you just have to like let wash over you as you watch. 
And that's kind of how I felt reading this too, where I was, there were times where I was like, what the hell is going on? But I was intrigued by the little tiny machinations of how it was going on almost more than the broader sense of stuff, if that makes sense. Like the way that a character would, um, plot something or like, like there's a fake kidnapping that happens and like the way that they think that up and the way that they execute that all the tiny little details that go into that, uh, just for like one little thing. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. And I guess before we really get into it, uh, I'll try to quickly sum things up, but the night manager gets its title from our main character named Jonathan Pine, who at the start of the book is a night manager at a fancy Swiss hotel with some background as being part of, uh, he's a soldier in his, in his past and just a, a very haunted protagonist. Uh, he's done a little bit of spying for the British government, stealing some documents and sending some faxes and things. And he gets involved a little bit with uh, this, uh, they call him the worst man in the world. His, his past lover who was brutally murdered for tipping one of the arms deals that he leaked to the British government uh, eventually is what she calls him. And his name is Richard Onslow Roper. And he's the the big baddie for this book. So Jonathan Pine starts out there, does a little bit of tattling on Roper's just what him and his entourage are doing. Uh, eventually quits that and gets picked up by British intelligence to be like, do you really want to go after this guy? And he, they take him out as a spy and build up this false past and eventually implant him into Roper's inner circle to try and really get something out of him because Roper's a guy who's supremely insulated against everything, making arms deals in exchange for drugs that he can then sell at a huge profit. And uh, he's also kind of the uh, British intelligence, the big services know about him, but they let him do his thing because uh, it's just part of the big overall bureaucratic mess of the world and part of the power dynamics and the politics and the, I think quite a few times throughout the book, our characters run up against uh, other characters going on about geopolitics, geopolitics. So more or less, that's what it's about. Uh, it also has a focus on Pine's handlers. Uh, Leonard Burr is leading a, like a sub agency trying to, to nail Roper. And there's a lot about his efforts to, to navigate the bureaucracy and the machinations of the establishment trying to just get in his way of his plan. So that's kind of the, the parallel plot. And so you can see, see both ends of it. You see what Pine's doing his spy craft, and then you can see the other end people receiving the messages and how he gets them. And very verite, very, it certainly feels like a real life story and to its benefit, somewhat but i think personally more to its detriment in some ways but i'm ready to go into that if you are yeah i i felt like it was definitely i don't know what uh how many novels in this was for him so i, I think it might just be like a write what you know thing but also since he's so experienced in it and has a passion for you know all the spy craft and all the different like inner workings of that world that that naturally would be what he would want to gravitate to and make it so realistic but yeah the <laughs> i was just like oh man this is like the anti james bond type thing where like it's it's not fantastical at all it's very very grounded but also very really sad in a way i thought too like especially our main character um yeah yeah, it was yeah. very hard to root for pine because he was just so completely yeah. sad and broken yeah. all the time like from um, page one like yeah yeah very deeply in his head so many regrets before we even really got started in his past for him and i mean it it ultimately to me was it was deeply unsatisfying and almost anticlimactic just because there was no big catharsis moment you know roper doesn't really get get his in this or anything he doesn't get shot he doesn't get taken down into prison or anything it ends up really being just um, Leonard Burr, the handler, engineers uh, his way through the bureaucracy to 
be able to get Pine out of the sticky situation, as well as the girl. And the the way he does that is he's like uh, tells Roper via intermediaries that either you let them go or I'm taking you down. Simple as that. And so he's able to get his agent and they get to have a happily ever after. So we get that, but we can't get both apparently with the, the bad guy getting taken down. So it was really just more cathartic seeing Bird get one over on the the big bad guru and overlord of the intelligence agencies named Jeffrey Darker than anything to do with Pine's story, really. I kind of respect the subversion of it a little bit uh, in terms of like not doing every single thing of the genre that you would expect and how real it definitely felt, but it still was just, maybe it was too real and it was just really so much bureaucracy and slow, slow build up. But I wanted to be more entertained. Dang it. Just (laughs) so for me, it was more instructive just to try and pick out some of the, the influences for Tenet then I was really invested in the story. And the, the biggest one I pulled out here was, well, besides the really dense plot, because there's there's a lot going on here. And Lakari has like a really amazing prose and way with words, but it's almost like you have to take it in small bites, like a really rich piece of cake or something, because you have to just little yeah, bits at a time yeah. start trying to go all at once. But I was gonna I was gonna note that too, like the way he describes like the Swiss mountainside and the snow at the beginning and then the way he describes um like the bahamas when that section happens yeah um and just his mix of like you have a very because this is in the 90s right and he's a very kind of old school like prim proper soldier takes a lot of pride in his hotel job too so you've got that type of sensibility and like combined with a british person so that very proper type thinking mixed with some idioms that are very 90s very modern uh brushing up against this old school environment and an old way of life uh that i thought was really interesting but yeah i would like read a few sentences and be like wow that's a really really great sentence and then there's a couple more later and i was like okay i gotta slow down and just not read so fast and take it all in a little bit yeah and that combined with his very clearly like vast knowledge and grip on current events of the time and all the politics and inner workings of how different agencies and different countries and everything fit together felt very it's almost encyclopedic but it it definitely made reading about these characters talking about things either in the sides or whatever just throwing away like just comments about like the Panamanians or anything else uh, very real and very lived in. But the just, yeah, the, the overall thing for me is that as a piece of entertainment, it somehow made the bureaucratic double dealing way more interesting than the field spies story for me. And oh, yeah, for sure. yeah, it was just yeah, it was just same. it was just hard to get through at times. So, you know, it has, of course, some twists and turns, but I don't really think as we like to expound here, the the twist didn't really make much of anything before it better, just because it, it was kind of what you expect, and it's not too big a surprise when it does happen. Uh, and I'm talking specifically about how uh, Palfrey kind of betrays Rex Goodhue, another uh, bureaucratic uh, lifer, helping out Burr to help help him do things. And uh, Harry Palfrey is, I think, apparently a character who's appeared in other Lakara novels. And he's like a, a lawyer who can help him finagle out stuff to do with, with legal loopholes and all that. And he's like a double, triple agent trying to play the, between the agencies and give everyone the info they want. And so it wasn't really that big of a surprise and it didn't really amplify anything else. And... I was going to say the the biggest thing I got from this as far as the influence on Tenet is clearly the the villain. Roper is very much a Sator kind of guy. He just he's more polite and well adjusted. Yeah, yeah. I guess you yeah. could say. But even then he's just Roper himself isn't that interesting. Like he's doing all this stuff and he's just so even keel all the time. There's never a moment where he loses it or really does something like himself or even orders something so unspeakably evil that you really want to hate him. 
which is kind of interesting because that's a conversation that Pine has himself during the book. Like, do I hate this guy yet? Really? Like, do I have enough to really want to screw him over? And at some point, I mean, no, not really. I mean, he's a misogynistic jackass pushing weapons and drugs across the world, but he's just more really just, um, just a nihilistic, uh, rich guy. His character is just such a, just giant black hole of nihilism because his character's politics are very much like, I'm not really doing anything wrong with the pushing all the arms trafficking around the world because the governments do it and they're doing causing their own trouble. So, you know, I'm just another making that possible for other people in a different way. So yeah, just as far as the oh, a review of the, the book itself, eh, but probably focus more on some of the Nolan stuff in a moment, but overall kind of just, yeah, not most entertaining thing for me. I'm sure there's, plenty uh, of things built into the layers of it that could be unpeeled but maybe it was also i was trying to get through it a little too quickly was just trying to get it done for this um i also actually listened to it on audiobook to try and help with this feed and maybe some of my impressions are influenced by the narrator's performance who wasn't bad but also just some some ways of delivery maybe made it colored my impression more than like how he did it more than what was actually being said in there. But um, so I admit there might've been mitigating factors, but overall a bit of a shoulder shrug of a story, but definitely keyed into some of the, the Nolan things we, we have to talk about. Yeah, that's pretty much how I feel like there were definitely elements of it that I really enjoyed. Like I said, the prose and the, the inner workings bits and pieces and stuff. But as a, yeah, as a whole book, I was just kind of like that. That's it at the end, you know. Um, yeah. And again, like, yeah, liked it, but also hadn't have not loved it as much as some of the other stuff that we've read so far. But still good. Like, I'll, I'll probably seek out uh, some other Lakari stuff. Like, I've heard uh, Most Wanted Man is pretty good, and some other stuff is good too. So, yeah, yeah. and I think. And I think one thing that may also be limiting me here and my evaluation of it is I haven't read any other Lacare novels. And part of what we're talking about here is artists kind of self-referencing them, themselves or riffing on their past work. So there may have been plenty of things that I didn't get or wasn't looking for. And also, I guess in past novels, it was relatively easier to have the enemy as during the cold war you know it's the the west versus east type thing and this novel required something different if we're, we're trying to keep up with current events contemporary current events for when this book came out in the, the early 90s so just with that then that made me focus in on nolan talking about tenet to tom Schoen and saying i wanted to use the familiarity of the conventions he's talking about the spy genre to help the audience get to this other place and he continued the weight of spy genre on this film was so heavy we didn't need to reference anything we just needed to get on with it and do our version of it so maybe just taking the conventions and using the familiarity of that and trying to find something a little different um, and just get on with it it's kind of what this book did and for someone so experienced, Lucare, having written however many novels to this time, but maybe the the convention that had to be upset for this time around was, oh, who's the enemy now? And I mean, and, the, and they talk about it in the book as well. Uh, I think there was a line about it's nice that the Russians are on our side now, and someone says like it's well, like all miracles, you know, it's 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 amazing, but you also know it's it's probably too good to be true, and you don't believe it. Uh, so yeah, people yeah. Are, it really does, I feel like capture a world in flux in transition. And it did open my eyes to having a, a window into, well, like how chaotic a time that it really was the early nineties and the transition from that cold war world where things were very clearly easily defined and trying to see every 
country cast around for like, okay, what do what do we fight now? And I think you could kind of see Lakari kind of casting around for that himself. And yeah, finally written story. But anyway, <laughs> that, that, that was one thing I got. <laughs> Otherwise, there wasn't really much of anything else I was really to dive into deeply on, except just some of the maybe just Nolan bits that maybe some of the, the catnip, right? So right. we got yeah, the yeah. villain. And there's some talk of guillotines and some a couple of off references to the French Revolution. So we have a tale of two cities that we talked about before, and uh, very very heavily the concept of kind of being clean in a dirty business, being surrounded by corruption, with Burr and his agency trying to do the right thing and get the bad guys when the whole establishment around them is trying to conceal all that the arms trafficking so touching on serpico and batman year one and batman begins um, mm-hmm. subjective mm-hmm. interpretations of objective facts there's um the the manufactured past they made for jonathan pine where some characters read it one way and then the british bureaucrats see it and they're like oh yeah this guy's really bad not worth saving uh so there's that in some ways at some point Pine almost has like a projection of his past lover who got murdered to talking to him when he's being tortured. So very inception, like just this version of his lover coming out of his own head. He's having a conversation with her very much Cobb talking to mall, you know, and then there's torture, betrayal, duality, guilt. So, so much guilt. Like it's all there. Like a lot of those Nolan things. Um, and, you know, kind of condensed into a tight package of a spy novel. So you can definitely get all the vibes from it. But I certainly think uh, Tenet for sure makes a much more entertaining spectacle in terms of getting all those things out of it and throwing them into something. Yeah, he took all the all the best parts, all the best elements of it, and just made it his own, definitely, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So I think I've wrung out everything that I had on, at least on the night manager individually. Might have some more talk about, you know, both things this week at once or something. But I think we can move on to this week's movie. Yeah. Our second Hitchcock movie. For this podcast. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Another first time watch for you, uh, but not for me. Yeah, I feel like I've I have increased uh, my Hitchcock, moved my way through his filmography a lot because of this. So that'll be it. Uh, so let's do a brief little uh, synopsis information for it here. Um, yeah. by Northwest was released in 1959, directed by Alvin Hitchcock, uh, starring Cary Grant, Eva Marie Saint, James Mason. Uh, it was in color and 35 millimeter in Vista Vision. Yeah. And 136 minutes long, and the brief IMDb synopsis says, A New York City advertising executive goes on the run after being mistaken for a government agent by a group of foreign spies and falls for a woman whose loyalties he begins to doubt. That's that's a pretty good one. Yeah. Good job, IMDb. That's what and happens. Also, yeah. And all of, all of Hitchcock's stuff right there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So what did you think, Jake? First time seeing it? Uh, I really liked it a lot. I uh, like just I know it was the Vista Vision and the color of all, but I'm like, man, they don't stuff doesn't pop like this like it used to in terms of color and just feels like it's coming out the screen. Like even just the way that everyone looks, you know, like the and the costumes and the and landscapes, the frame and everything just looks gorgeous, obviously. Same with the uh, Vertigo, like we talked about, yeah, uh, a couple episodes ago. I wish we could get colors like this in movies again. I mean, maybe we do. It's just you, you have to look for it somewhere. I don't know if maybe Wes Anderson is one of the closer filmmakers that gets up to this uh, level of color. Because I'm thinking of Grand Budapest Hotel, and I'm thinking of all the promotional stills I've yeah. seen of Asteroid City. Yeah, uh, I haven't seen, seen Asteroid City, yet, but that's yeah. Um, I'm trying to think like. But he has very vibrant things for sure. Yeah. 
like Mike Flanagan has, he like kind of color grades a lot of his stuff with like a bluish hue, but that's not really what this is doing. But yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I would think trying to think of another example and coming up short, uh, which is sad, but um, no, it looks great. I love the, I, I don't know. I think I had always thought of this as being one of the more horror leaning ones for him. And I was surprised by, how funny this was yeah. uh, in a lot of places and how about midway through, I was like, this feels like a Connery bond movie almost, or like a spoof of a Connery bond movie. And then when I was looking up more stuff, I was like, Oh, this like look and the feel of this was actually what the broccolis modeled the James Bond movies after, cause they already had the Fleming novels and they had the source material, but how do you translate to the, that to the screen? Yeah. And so they actually modeled it after this movie and so they were like this is apparently people call this like you know sometimes the the first bond movie has a little tongue-in-cheek thing but like yeah, yeah. the wide cracks that he has like the the carrie grant's characters put in like a bunch of crazy situations but still always manages to have a, a joke or a, a plan to get out of stuff also this movie at a and I put this in my letterbox review, but and I might have to watch Rear Window again. But this has has got to be like at least in the top three for Hitchcock's horniest movies. That he's <laughs> made. We have not one but two scenes where a train goes into its own. Uh, oh yes, <laughs> and I I'd, I'd forgotten uh, the end shot of this because I had seen it before uh, a, a long time ago in my in my I, TCM upbringing, and then I just couldn't help but just burst out laughing out loud when i, I saw that <laughs> i cackled once i realized that was that that was going to be the final shot because it's a great transition from him uh saving avery saint off of the cliffs of mount rushmore <laughs> and then you she gets pulled up into the train car and then bam train goes to the tunnel <laughs> <laughs> yeah not so much a freudian slip as a, a freudian Jeez. face plant and fall down a ladder but uh, it was very in the spirit of what we're talking about tonight, very self-referential, yeah. self-conscious. Uh, Hitchcock knew like, yeah. just very clearly. He's like, yes, I know exactly what you're all thinking, and I am not going to be subtle about it. Yes, and here it is. Uh, but that, I mean, that's not to say that it's not thrilling, like the crop duster scene. Oh, yeah. Um, even the auction scene. Uh, where he messes with the price a little bit is still still a lot of fun. Yes, uh, and thrilling. Um, the scene at the in the the house before they mm, they, mm-hmm. they try to leave at the very end when he's tossing her the matchbook. That one, that one yeah. had me had me going. Yeah, yeah. it had been long enough for me since I've seen it to you know I remember some of the big moments Mount Rushmore and the crop duster, but like the the matchbook and him trying to communicate with her. I was like, oh man, I can't remember. I was goes quite specifically but it, it's a it's a tense situation and i love it so hitchcock doing doing his work as usual um it's just a really just it's, it's such a bonkers movie um i mentioned watching all the indiana jones movies and it was a good warm-up for revisiting this one because it's just a bunch of really wild situations and set pieces and there's so many crazy things that happen and it, like in a good way and Cary Grant yeah, is yeah. he's one of my favorites like he's anything he, I see him in he's the, his voice is so distinctive his 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 patter and his delivery and just how he holds himself he's so suave but can just pull out that that comedy so well when he needs to it's it's great so technically excellent as well of course um Bernard Herrmann's score just the this period of Hitchcock with Vertigo and this and like and you get Herman and the Saul Bass credits. Oh man. There's just such a distinctive feel about it all and it it feels really good and it's a, such a pleasure to watch. And James Mason as the main bad guy is Philip Van Dam. I really enjoyed his performance. It was fantastic. So oh, he's yeah, he's great. So yes, quite an excellent film. And I'm so glad we got to to watch this and I, that I got to see it again. But in terms of our uh, our Nolan discussion, I think the theme of the the time is uh, being in conversation with yourself, self referencing. I think the theme of the conversation 
with Tom Schoen talking to Chris Nolan from the book is by the time he got to Tenet, the instructive quote for me was by Tom Schoen, Tenet seemed confirmation of something that befalls all influential directors sooner or later. Nolan had become his own adjective. So we have Nolan-esque, just like we have Hitchcockian and Lynchian and Spielbergian. I don't know if that's the proper one for that, but <laughs> it's... Yeah, we'll go with that. Yeah, you know, we've gotten to a point with, you know, uh, Hitchcock here and with Nolan coming up with Tenet to where everyone knows what their whole deal is. So how do you make a movie when everyone knows your whole deal? What the... <laughs> Um, I think the, um, the, the writer of North by Northwest, Ernest Lehman said he, with this, he wanted to write the Hitchcock picture to end all Hitchcock pictures. And certainly think we that he accomplished that. And that kind of leaves the question for us later is maybe we'll do it next time. Uh, is Tenet the Nolan picture to end all Nolan pictures? We'll, we'll discuss. So I think that's what we're. The, the bulk of this remaining conversation is going to be, you know, you have your brand name director and in instantly recognizable style. And as a filmmaker or an author, how do you stay true to those impulses? And that's what Nolan talks about with Tom Schoen. Yeah. Like from the, the opening credits to everything else, even right down to like his choice of leading man, like Cary Grant had been in, one or two movies from him before and Jimmy Stewart had been in a lot before that. So just his, his practice of taking a marquee leading man and just saying like, yeah, we're going to do some, some weird shit <laughs> and people are going to like it. And kind of like, I don't know his, cause Cary Grant's looks are definitely, I think a part of his character here too. Yeah. Where like the, the way that he uh, ends up meeting What's her actual character's name? Eve Kendall. Eve. Yeah, when he meets Eve on the train, you know, that's like an instant flirting connection. There. And like all the dialogue is also just, it's very innuendo coded, like, yeah, uh, language. Like everyone just kind of dancing around the thing that they actually want to want to talk about. When it's, at one point, she's like, you might not want to, or you might want to. Uh, say Rome for dessert and it's like oh she's like yeah but not that's not what I'm talking about and yeah and you're just like oh man like just it's like almost like a boyish like oh no like <laughs> <laughs> but uh so you've got all that going on and then like even that interaction is two strangers meeting on a train strangers on a train he calls himself uh one quote he says I'm I'm an ad man I'm not a red herring and you know just, so that plus uh there's even some, because Vertigo was the first movie, the movie that he released right before this, a year yes. before it. And this is even kind of playing on that with like a lot of this takes place up high on Mount Rushmore or on top of like buildings looking down. And, when, and then he's, you know, looking into a window to get that no tears, a rear window. Like it's all referencing a lot of his other stuff that come before. Uh, and kind of just mixing it and matching it up together. And I also really liked the bit in the in the Tom Schoen book where he's talking about Inception and how that movie really plays on the the dream logic aspect of movies. The scene where Leo DiCaprio and uh, Elliot Page are uh, he's explaining the dream part, right? And they're like, "Well, what what are you talking about? What what do you what do you mean?" And he's like, "Well, how did we get here?" You just opened your eyes and all of a sudden we were on the street in Paris. And then in the book, it points out, yeah, how does he get to that cornfield where the crop buster yeah, is? Yeah, it's like, do you remember? It, yeah, yeah, it's just a, an editing trick that you take for granted, which also now that I'm remind, remembering for Night Manager is written very much like there's a lot of scenes where it's written like it like it's being cut almost like there's moments where it's like cut to this or like people are watching. Yes, Something yeah, it just from, switches. Yeah, yeah, like the, just immediate like edit cut right there, like that. But, um, yeah, that's just like a long rambling way to say that this, yeah, it's it's Hitchcock just kind of having fun with everything right after doing a really heavy movie with Vertigo and kind of throwing all of the kitchen sink in there with it. 
but then the James Bond of it all too, like I was talking about earlier with, you know, the way that Cary Grant is just wisecracking and, you know, walking around in a nice suit the whole time and has a way with words, has a way with lemon, has a way with getting out of sticky situations. Tenet was, and we can talk more about this in the upcoming Tenet episode too, but he mentions how like, you know, the James Bond influence is all over Tenet because it, it feels like it's his attempt at a Bond film, basically. But he also says that he intentionally did not watch any Bond movies while writing it or leading up to the making of it because he didn't want to be influenced in any way. But that the that Tenet was kind of more about your memory of what a Bond film should feel like. Yeah. And what that feeling you get when you watch it instead of any other interpretation of what Ian Fleming did. Yeah. Um, I have a quote right here. Yeah. Oh, there you yeah. go. He said, quote, it's your memory of it that's important and what it could be. You want to distill the essence of that secret agent thing. It's trying to take it as far as it can go. And I think that's really what these movies, North by Northwest and Tenet, are really kind of about the, the distillation of essence, not to get too close to Dr. Strangelove here, <laughs> um, purity of essence, but it's they're each pure, unrefined Hitchcock, pure, unrefined Nolan. They're just like kind of off the rails in their own way, but totally engrossing and awesome to see these directors just like doing these things they've either done before or self-referencing or Nolan says that he's not really, he's like, well, I don't know if I'd say I'm riffing on things, but I'm just trying to, he said, his quote is, I'm trying to be true to the impulses that have defined me. And I certainly got that feeling here with, from Hitchcock, where I have a little more experience and, you know, especially with his, some of his 50s movies. Um, yeah, I haven't seen a lot of his early career, early mid-career stuff, like um, from the 30s and 40s, but I'm sure there's a whole bunch of stuff packed in as well, just based on the, the commentary from other well-versed folks surrounding this. And Nolan again uh, telling Tom Shum, can you be sincere and self-conscious? I'm not sure you can. And that's how you get something like Hitchcock putting that end shot of the train. He's like, yeah, I know what's going to happen here. So I'm going to put it in. Like, maybe it doesn't come across as sincere, but like, yeah, here, like I know everyone is uh, wise to my Freudian uh, sexual, like, you know, innuendos and fascination. So here you go. Um, so <laughs> put it in. But uh, also Nolan saying the sincerity to me is in not taking these things out. So Hitchcock knows wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You're going to see this, but also like, like, what do you want me to do at this point? So I'm going to leave it in the movie because that's what the movie is. So things like that are, I think very, very indicative of what we can see in North by Northwest. Yeah. And you also have the, I mean, it's kind of like a chicken and the egg situation because Nolan was, was so much influenced by, like early noir and early spy films and stuff when he first was starting out. But like, you've got the, the woman who may or may not be duplicitous and she's probably blonde. And how is that going <laughs> to affect the main character? Right. Uh, and then the, you know, of course all the double crossing, all the, the stuff, this is, it's interesting that he, that Hitchcock followed up the vertigo with this one. Cause there's also, I felt like the James Stewart protagonist and the Cary Grant, protagonists from this one kind of share like a lot of just like both of their plot boils down to identity a lot oh yeah yeah this guy because Cary Grant is mistaken for an agent who we later come to find does not exist it's a fake person that they invented whole cloth to get the other spies off the trail Um, and he just got caught up in a game of mistaken identity and a game of he is the pawn in the spy craft basically who then has to become a spy himself in order to survive and then vertigo is all about you know making someone's identity into what you think should be and making it over into like a fabrication of reality almost by the end of the movie yeah and so i thought that was an interesting like whether he i'm sure he knew that that was there but having it so close together from where we just watched Vertigo. Watching both of those was interesting. Yeah. Um, and the fact that, yeah, that Cary Grant's Thornhill is mistaken for someone else, but then he actually becomes that someone mm-hmm. uh, yeah. is 
very much like the one of the most fascinating things to me about this and uh, in, in conversation with vertigo yeah like yeah it's it's like the thing from Tropic Thunder. Like I'm the dude. This guy's as a dude playing another <laughs> dude. And like then, <laughs> like who really is Roger Thornhill by the end of this? Um, and then yeah, Eve Kendall as well is uh, is an agent, and she's first we meet her, we think she's just the the duplicitous dame, and then she's actually undercover, and then he has to Thornhill has to work with her to like not blow her cover, and then yeah, it's it's just so wild. Um, but yeah, like absolutely that connection with Vertigo with identity and, and things. And this, this kind of like takes that and I don't know if distorts it, but it's like, yeah, you can be this person, you can be mistaken, you can do this and that, or you can just become the person that someone else thinks you are. So yeah, very heavy on the, on the duality, if not, you know, going back and forth on the, on the tennis court of it. But I don't really have too many other things. Uh, I did find it interesting with Nolan talking uh, about other influences on Tenet. He did mention in the chapter in the Nolan Variations uh, about Fritz Lang, who we've talked about here before with the Dr. Mabu's films. And Nolan also called out Spies specifically and said he watched that early on in the development of Tenet but he didn't show it to the crew and that he went back to one of the Mabu's films and talked about just getting the idea of like the he says the way secret societies are integrated into the fabric of it the use of bureaucratic structures to conceal criminal activity uh, Lang did that before anyone so just that idea the using bureaucratic structures to conceal things that that's exactly what happens in the night manager and there's kind of a hint of it in North by Northwest, um, where it's like there's that the murder at the UN, where the the bad guys are kind of using a bureaucrat to help conceal their what they're doing. So in almost a, a reversed way, but getting that idea in was was a good one. And um, and Tenet, you know, I've only seen it the one time so far, so I'm trying to think. Yeah, there's not, I don't know, but the, the bureaucracy concealing things, but there are bureaucracies kind of at war. You got the tenant organization versus Sator's organization. Uh, so, you know, kind of those those bureaucracies. But anyway, the bureaucratic idea came come and played in there and uh, thought it had a bit of a, a loose, loose tie across all three of these things. Oh, yeah. And there's definitely, there's... Um kind of an element to that in intent but it's much more of a from a a spy craft geopolitical element there's not a lot of kind of backroom dealings uh with that one but it definitely is like a there are people higher above from the the main character pulling the strings and making sure everything is going the way it should like in a movie like this but yeah yeah so it continues that but there's also there's funny moments in that one too. Oh yeah, really, like with the uh, what was it? Like, he forgot my hot sauce line or whatever. Uh, <laughs> when the, and I was just like, there's so many good one-liners in this movie that I really was not expecting. The main one was the when he's when Carrie Grant's running, he has to escape through a hospital room, and it's a woman patient in the bedroom. And at first, she's like, "Stop!" and then. He just is like, oh, sorry, excuse me. And he runs through the door and then she like puts her glasses on and actually like checks it out. She's like, no, wait, stop. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the, the, when he's in the crop doesn't spot and that guy out there by the phone, he's like, that's funny. That plane's dusting crops when there ain't no crap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, but my my favorite one that is more pursuant to Hitchcock's sensibilities and kind of a little bit with Nolan too, with all of his talk about you know what can you actually prove is real, what can you prove is not, uh, is when Roger is talking about his ad man experience and he says in the world of advertising there's no such thing as a lie, there's only expedient exaggeration. Ah uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, just like mm, that's that's good, so good that that boils pretty much Hitchcock down into his essence basically and not quite i mean maybe not quite nolan but definitely the the showman 
and the, the manipulation of reality thing is there too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, then the only, and the last thing I think I'll mention is that the theme and title of the chapter where they discuss tenet and the only variations is knowledge, which is pretty much all that, that spying is about. It's knowledge and finding it out, finding out information, passing it on what you know and don't know. And I've kind of recontextualized a Nolan quote to Tom Schoen when he was talking about Tenet and the MacGuffin for that movie, the device that could, the, the algorithm that they try to get to, to the people from the future trying to change the, the past. But in the context of just a, a quote unquote typical spy story, Nolan says to know something is to have power over it generally, but what if the reverse is true? If knowing something gives it power over you. So in North by Northwest and the night manager, there's a lot of things that characters find out that they can't really do anything with. So say Thornhill finds out that these other spies think he's somebody else. Well, great. Doesn't help him. He just knows he has to run. So you can't really do anything to change that. So just um, I thought that concept was present here a little bit. And it's something we'll definitely be pondering and talking about in Tenet, especially because of that implications for that, uh, that it has in discussion of Oppenheimer too. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I'm looking through my notes. I think uh, I've hit all the high points I want to get to. So you think it's letterbox time? I think it's letterbox time and I'll let you go first. If, if you want to go first. All right. Sounds good. Uh, mine is also pretty quick. This one is from brat on letterboxd, uh, actual, uh, uh, I forget her name. She works for it's Mia from letterbox. She works for them and does podcasts. Uh, oh, Mia Vicino. Vicino. Yes. Yes. Her. Yeah. And it's a, well, a good favorite uh, short review here, and it says Roger Thornhill refusing to pay a $2 DUI ticket, but taking the time to tip the waiter $2 before running from the cops is chaotic neutrality at its finest. <laughs> yes, indeed. And then the top comment is, say what you will about the man, but Hitchcock really hated cops. <laughs> yes, I saw that one too. And he did, yes. Very true. Uh, <laughs> but I noticed that too. I was like, his his DUI ticket is only two bucks. <laughs> yeah, I, and the, inflation, man. Yeah, yeah. really. <laughs> Get drunk in nineteen fifty nine, you only got to pay two dollars. So, <laughs> but uh, I kind of cheated and looked at yours ahead of time, and yours is is really good. But I'll let you hit the high notes from yours. Yeah, the one I found is by Peter Labuza at Labuza movies and I won't go through the entire thing, even though it's fantastic. It's just talking about the horizontal and vertical parts of the movie and how those are horizontals and verticals are used throughout. So I took a few of the bits out to, to go through, but it starts horizontal meets vertical as the title and crisscrossing credits propose. Cary Grant commits the greatest of horizontal acts, swiping into a cab, and tells the man a lie. He's a hero for his immobility. The rest of the film turns a cosmic joke on the star as he runs from east to west in the identity of a man of a shorter suit. And then it goes on to say, Grant's a victim to verticality, pulling up a knife trapped in an overhead compartment, forced to use a tiny razor compared to a man's full blade, only able to run on the ground while the powers that be swoop down in a crop duster from above. And then the conclusion a little later is in the end, he climbs up a building, drops down a matchbox as a warning, scales down Mount Rushmore, the ultimate higher ups, and finally raises the girl up in the last shot. The train runs horizontally into the tunnel as his reward. So, uh, the rest of it is really great too, but it's a really wonderful, almost like an artful review of this movie and a really incredible drawing together of some of the visual themes uh, really of the movie. And, you know, talking about vertigo as well with being high up and verticality and all those things, just 
just a really well done review a pleasure to read so so thank you peter for that well done yeah, I liked that a lot. That was, I need to go back and read the full yeah. thing. That was you should start a podcast just reading people's letterbox reviews, but I don't think we'd get very far. I'm sure there'd be some kind of copyright issue trying to do that <laughs> on, a, yeah. on a regular, solely main focus basis. Yeah. But anyway, in the meantime, where can people find us, Jake? You can find us uh, on Instagram at friends at dusk pod. You can find us on Twitter on at friends at dusk. Uh, you can email us at friends at dusk pod at gmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, uh, and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Jake Harris four and on letterboxd at 808 Jake underscore. And what about you, Marshall? I am on Instagram at marshall.doig, on Twitter at marshalldoig, and on Letterboxd at mdoig. So please like and subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or anywhere you can give a rating. And for as long as we're going to be doing this podcast, you can also do it on Stitcher, which also is uh, on its way out today, RIP, at the end of August. But... Anyway, you can also support us through our Spotify podcast page. And you can find our list of resources uh, and everything we mentioned in the show notes. And next time we are going to be discussing Tenet. We're getting very, very close to the end of uh, the filmography here, but we're very excited to revisit that one next time. The end of the beginning of the end. Yes. In the meantime, that is it for us. And we'll see you next time on Friends at Dusk. Thanks for listening. Bye.